Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Next Off podcast of Victory Briefs Project. I'm Lawrence, joined by Chris and Jacob. We are a podcast discussing all things Circuit Lincoln Douglas debate, and we publish new episodes every other week. This is our ninth episode where we'll be doing a topic analysis on the November December LD topic uh, that's about the federal jobs guarantee. Before we discuss the topic, we just wanted to remind our listeners we have a Google form linked in the show notes where you can submit feedback or suggestions for future topics. Finally, thanks to Victory Briefs for sponsoring this podcast. Victory Briefs is a summer debate institute and publisher of debate materials, which you can learn more about at victorybriefs.com. All right, we'll discuss uh, this topic, its history, and some arguments for and against it after this short break. All right, let's first start by uh, discussing broadly what the topic is before we jump into our like thoughts about the topic and arguments for and against it. Um, so the topic is resolved, the United States ought to provide a federal jobs guarantee. I guess I can start with like the most basics. Um, the federal jobs guarantee is a program that guarantees people jobs. Um, but I think one thing that I, I'll start off with and then you all can add thoughts as needed is the word federal jobs guarantee, like it implies that the program is entirely run by the federal government, but it seems like most proposals are not. They are funded by the federal government, but most of the sort of jobs and where they're allocated, how each individual state and county wants to deal with that, it's, it's left up to them. And so the federal government is the one in charge of it, but it's ultimately up to the states and localities, depending on whichever uh, version of the federal jobs guarantee you look at, that's going to be the one that's actually providing the jobs. Something else related to that, I think, is a lot of these uh, programs end up having a sort of like a public-private partnership of sorts, where those jobs might be in conjunction with a private company or a private charity. And so the, the federal government will have some sort of deal with, say, a charity where you know, some number of jobs for that charitable purpose are funded by the federal government is something that you'll see often. And so it's also not even exclusively like state state jobs it might be state funded jobs that end up in some sort of non-state sector like especially nonprofits i think show up a lot yeah and uh i think that's kind of an important thing because um, a lot of people get kind of confused about it um, and the other thing that's kind of annoying about federal jobs guarantee is it's, it's a little bit vague so for one thing there's a bunch of different names for it so i believe tice had pushed a topic called the employer of last resort um, a few years ago which uh if i recall correctly was like one of the bottom voted topics of all time on that, yes. that year's slate, despite the fact that employer of last resort is basically a federal jobs guarantee. A little rebranding, put it back out there, and suddenly people voted for it. Yeah, which is like kind of ridiculous because you have the federal jobs guarantee, employer of last resort, jobs guarantee, or jobs for all, uh, to borrow the language of like Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. um, and so you get a, like a bunch of uh, names for the exact same program um, or the exact same idea. And the other thing that's kind of uh, annoying about federal jobs guarantee is a lot of the details are kind of up for debate. And so in the literature, I've seen two major proposals, although maybe you two have seen other ones. And these proposals will differ in, in a lot of the details that like do matter for this debate in ways that I, I don't think it has mattered as much, for example, topics like living wage, which were similar. I mean, so those two proposals are the Turknerva proposal. I don't know how to pronounce that name, but it's from the Levi uh, Economics Institute. And then the other one is the Paul et al. proposal from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Um, and they'll differ in basically what wage they want to set the federal jobs guarantee at, uh, as well as some of the benefits that they provide um, and stuff like that. One other thing I'd like to point out then, um, we're talking about some confusion over terminology here, uh, state and local versus federal, that kind of stuff. I think another thing that comes up in the literature a lot is full employment policies versus a jobs guarantee, which I think are distinct, but often are overlapping in the discussions. 
I think the key here is the is the guarantee part, right? That you get a job. That's just what happens. The government in most of these proposals is providing the funding for you to have that job. Full employment policies, on the other hand, use other mechanisms of government to aim at having you know, everyone who wants to have work have work without the guarantee part. So you could have a situation where a full employment program in fact leads to everyone being employed, but it would still be different than a jobs guarantee. So for example, you can have a monetary policy that is aimed at full employment, right? So instead of being aimed at price stability, your monetary system is aimed at full employment or you know, other fiscal policy is aimed at full employment, but you're not actually directly providing funding to pay for jobs. Instead, you're engaged in a level of stimulus or government spending or currency manipulation to aim at full employment. Uh, and then one other thing that I think is also very similar, but not the same that you'll see in some of the literature is workfare programs, which is basically where if you want welfare, whatever social services exist, you have to work for them. And so that ends up looking very similar because it's people who otherwise don't have work and go get welfare end up with some sort of government job. But again, the goal is not to guarantee everyone a job so much as to impose some sort of work condition on like welfare policy, which is, you know, again, not, not quite the same thing. One of the things that's uh, a little bit different from federal jobs guarantee as opposed to like other economics topics like living wage or universal basic income is that uh, there isn't that much evidence about the efficacy of a federal jobs guarantee because there just like aren't actual programs in the world that are federal jobs guarantee programs. Whereas like you can find, uh, you know, decent experiments for the UBI and you can find a lot of European countries that like have basically a living wage. Um, and so I think as a result, some of the literature kind of suffers because it's much more speculative in nature. And when the mm -hmm. literature does reference examples, it, it references two uh, programs. So the first is the program for the unemployed male and female heads of households in Argentina. And the second is the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Act of 2005 in India. And the problem is, is like, neither of those are actual jobs guarantee programs, mostly because they're quite limited in terms of who they offer jobs to. And they don't fulfill the typical requirement of federal jobs guarantee in that they don't pay very much either, um, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Act of 2005, I think we'll just refer to that as like the Mahatma Gandhi jobs guarantee or something. It's a really long name. Um, like only offers it to a select number of people living in rural communities. So it's not really a federal jobs guarantee. Um, and then it's kind of the same problem with the Argentina program as well. So there's a lot more to the history of this topic. For instance, you probably want to know at least a little bit about the New Deal and the Works Progress Administration and Civilian Conservation Corps and stuff like that. But honestly, like that's just useful, like cross-sex knowledge is like very rarely gonna influence an actual debate. So in terms of history, go feel free to like look up stuff on your own. We'll drop some links in the show notes. In terms of, you know, our opinions on this topic writ large before we jump into arguments uh, specifically for and against, I want to say that I think this topic will play out better than compulsory voting, um, even though I think objectively uh, it is less quality. Um, I think the literature is less developed and less in interesting than a lot of the compulsory voting literature. Um, but I do think because it, A, has an actor, and B, gets us to bigger stick impacts than compulsory voting does, at least more directly, um, people are going to debate this. Uh, a lot more like a standard policy topic that they want to debate it like, as opposed to the compulsory voting topic, which they was kind of uh, deformed into a gross version of a policy topic that it really shouldn't have ever been in the first place. Yeah, I think I mostly agree with that. I think it's a pretty solid topic. I'd give FJG an A as far as like quality of topic. Um, but I also agree that it's, it's a sort of topic that I think debaters will be able to, to do better than, than compulsory voting, which I agree is, is kind of botched. Like, 
got a got a simple story for the app. They're just like people need jobs, give them jobs. There's a specific program that gives them jobs. Defend that. And then the negative has some pretty obvious responses like these jobs aren't good jobs. These jobs hurt the economy and so forth. And so I think it'll, it'll be very easy to grasp. Uh, and I think it's like a simple enough topic for like, especially for November, December, which usually isn't like a super developed topic. Um, I, I think it's a, a pretty high quality topic. I thought all the topics in this slate were actually quite good, but I, I think FDG is probably the best of them. And I think it'll probably turn out pretty well. Yeah, I also think it's a good topic. I think it was probably of the entire list of topics this year, my favorite. I think you're probably right. If it was JanFab, it might be a little played out by the end because the literature is not super deep, although I think it's very high quality for the most part. Uh, and there's some good sort of back and forths on different types of proposals for dealing with largely the same thing, which I think is um, going to be what sort of the hallmark of this topic is every round should be an AF versus a counter plan, um, I think, right? So, and a lot of topics we've previously had um, that people have backfiles on. Uh, living wage, um, UBI, are really relevant to the counterplan debate there as well. So I think that's largely what's going to characterize it. I think that maybe makes it a little difficult for November, December, because there's a lot of work to do, not just on the jobs guarantee, but on all these different counterplans that are going to become relevant. But overall, I'm a, I'm a big fan. So one thing you mentioned a second ago was that you thought the literature uh, was like fairly high quality. And so I have like two thoughts on this. So one of them is, I actually think it's the case that the authors are more qualified than the actual literature itself suggests. Like you have these like people with, you know, five paragraph long of qualifications, like PhD from this school, yep. like visiting fellow at this school. And then they have papers which are, you know, they're written fine, but they're basically just like, well, if it turns out you want to solve the problem of unemployment, you give people jobs. And like, that is basically the paper, um, just with fancier words thrown in there. And I think part of that is just due to the fact like, well, there actually just hasn't been that many studies on this. So it's like really difficult to get that much more detailed. Yeah, I think the, the big problem holding back the literature that no one has actually done the F really mm -hmm. anywhere. And that just makes it hard to really have really solid empirical evidence. You have to extrapolate from theory or you have to extrapolate from sort of more limited programs and historical examples. And that just makes it hard. I think the best part of the literature is actually when you get into articles that are like, should we do a UBI or should we do a jobs guarantee? Like just do those comparisons. I think that's the best part of the lit. Yeah. And then the second thing was something that actually Nails had mentioned to me after he'd finished cutting the packet, which is that a lot of the app authors seem like ridiculously overqualified. And despite the fact that the negative has good arguments, it's just like the authors are noticeably less qualified. Um, they're mostly just like random, you know, econ people at like Cato writing about the federal jobs guarantee, as opposed to like PhD from, you know, Harvard, like the app authors are just ridiculously qualified. And I, I thought that was kind of an interesting imbalance. Yeah, I obviously agree with that. It, it did seem like there's a bit of an imbalance in literature when I was cutting cards between like very qualified authors making very simple arguments and like people who didn't have the best paper quals, just like having like smart analytic <laughs> responses mm -hmm. to the FJG um, that are hard to answer again without, you know, empirics. I guess one other thing that uh, will kind of affect this topic is like sort of just background knowledge of economics concepts. I don't know that much about econ. I like barely passed my college econ courses. And as soon as I passed them, I was like, I don't ever want to think about this again. Like the most I know about economics is like the word opportunity cost. So I can describe mm. what a counter plan is. Um, I imagine a lot of debaters are gonna be in the same boat. And because this is a topic that does rely a decent bit on economic theory, I'm wondering sort of what disadvantage debaters who aren't well-versed in the world and language of economics uh, are gonna be debating this topic. That's a good question. Here's my prediction is it's not gonna matter because no one's gonna care even though it should. Uh, it just seems like the sort of thing where like 
the literature says this is super duper important. And the debaters are like, this is confusing. It can't be encapsulated into like a simple link card. So I'm just not going to cut it. And then the other side's also not going to cut it. And so it's just going to be irrelevant. Uh, so here's the thing that I think theoretically ought to matter a lot. Like if you were actually trying to reach the truth about a jobs guarantee rather than want a debate on the jobs guarantee is there's this big underlying clash you'll see referenced a lot uh, regarding modern monetary theory, yep. which uh, if you haven't heard of it before is so it sort of like flips the standard economics view of how government uh, monetary policy operates on its head. And so whereas normally most economists would say something like this, they would say, well, look, the, the way the government functions is you tax the people to, to raise revenue uh, and then you raise enough revenue to balance your budget so that when you spend money, uh, you're spending as much as you're raising. Or may, maybe you run like a slight deficit and you have to borrow or whatever. But sort of government operates like people do, which is it, it makes money via taxes, it spends money and it tries to balance that numbers as well as it can. And that's the function of its fiscal policy. And then the monetary policy, like the stuff the Federal Reserve, it, it, it's there to like you know stabilize prices and whatnot. Modern monetary theory comes along and says, that's basically backwards. That in fact, the point of taxes is not to raise money. The point of taxes is actually to, to make your money worth something. That the reason the government creates taxes mm -hmm. in the first place is because now there's a demand for the dollar bill. People want your dollar because they need to pay taxes and they pay taxes with the dollar bill. And so taxes are how you uh, affect inflation. So your fiscal policy controls things like inflation. And then you raise money via monetary policy by just printing more money. And so it just like inverts that whole equation. And those authors tend to support the jobs guarantee. So modern monetary theory tends to be an app argument because if you don't view the government as trying to balance the budget and you view the government as just like printing money to make more people work, then your natural goal is gonna to be to try to hit full employment, which the FJG obviously then does. And right. then if you don't subscribe to modern monetary theory, you might be somewhat off put by the idea of trying to maximize employment because then you're much more worried about things like inflation. Yeah, this becomes really important to basically every neg disad that they could read to the AF. The underlying debate ends up becoming something along these lines. And the, the big takeaway, I think, from it, uh, to simplify before kids dig into it, is what MMT would say is there are no fiscal constraints on what the government can do. Uh, there are only real economic constraints, right? How much productive capacity exists in the real economy is the only constraint on what the government can do. There's no such thing as a fiscal constraint. Essentially. And, you know, I don't really know that much about this. I, I do know that uh, modern monetary theory is just like a very, it, it like used to be pretty fringe, but then like Bernie Sanders, like main economic advisors, like Stephanie Kelton is just like a big MMT person. And as a result, like propelled MMT into like mm -hmm. more of a mainstream than it like really ought to be probably. I will say it's not the case that you have to support MMT to support an FJG. Like there are a lot of authors that are like very explicitly just sort of standard Keynesian economics um, and they don't subscribe to MMT and still support an FJG. But, it, but, it, but Nails is correct, which is that if you look at people who subscribe to MMT, they almost all support the federal crops guarantee. It, it is very heavy overlap there, there. Yes. Any other like basic economics terms? I think the other one that like will pop up a lot is the phrase automatic stabilizer. An automatic stabilizer is something that essentially operates counter-cyclically um, with the economy to sort of even out dips that might happen due to recessions or shocks. So for example, the, the jobs guarantee works this way because as unemployment rises, right, in the private sector, companies go out of business because of whatever happened in the economy, the number of people employed by a jobs guarantee would go up, right, to match that amount because everyone's guaranteed a job from the government. So that program expands or shrinks based on the state of the private sector economy. Other things that work like this, 
would be things like unemployment insurance, right? The amount we pay out unemployment insurance goes up and helps stabilize the economy as the number of unemployed people increases. Makes sense. And then one Any last thing I would think the debaters should probably be familiar with is terms relating to employment and unemployment. There's a lot of them that I think are kind of important. First, you should probably understand the various types of employment and you should understand what full employment means. I think we've already referenced that. Bear in mind that full employment does not mean that there is uh, nobody unemployed. I mean, you, you might think that from the name, but full employment just means that there is no, there's nobody who meets certain types of unemployment. Uh, and this then gets into the specific type of unemployment. So one is cyclical unemployment. That's when the economy fluctuates, uh, you know, up and down, you have, you know, boom cycles and busts. And then sometimes there's more jobs, sometimes there's fewer. And so cyclical unemployment is how much unemployment is being caused by that cycle. Um, and so at certain periods, like say around 2008, you have a lot of unemployment just due to the economic cycle. And then you also have other forms of employment, like frictional unemployment, which just refers to like the fact that you're unemployed between jobs. If you leave one job and search for another job, there's going to be that friction where you're unemployed for a little while, or you just left education and now you're looking for your first job and there's a friction of unemployment. Uh, and there's also structural unemployment, which is when like you have skills that don't match the, the workforce, like you're the best horse and carriage driver right after the cars come out, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And you're the best you can find a driver after automation of the fleet, right? Yeah. More relevant to. Yeah. yeah. So you got these different breakdowns and like that, that's kind of the, the, the common three-part definition, but you'll find others that list more types of unemployment. Um, but basically the idea behind full employment is trying to solve cyclical unemployment, which is you're trying to make sure that, that you're minimizing those cyclical fluctuations in the economy. Because something like frictional unemployment is kind of inevitable. You can't stop people from moving from job to job, that sort of thing. And so that's why full employment isn't necessarily 100% is because it's saying, sure, some degree of unemployment and things like friction is inevitable. We're trying to solve the, the problem of economic cycles and the influence of markets on employment. And so this is where that automatic stabilizer thing comes in is the purpose of the FDAG is to catch all the people who are unemployed because of economic downturns uh, during that period and then go back to work. And so that's just something to be aware of is full employment does not equal 100% employment. Full employment equals solving those cyclical forms of unemployment, which is what the app will be claiming to do. Presumably a jobs guarantee would also have some effect on structural unemployment though, right? If we think about it in sort of the terms that a lot of people who are worried about automation think about it, right? There's gonna be big structural changes in the economy that leave large numbers of unskilled workers unable to find work. Um, presumably it would smooth those sort of large scale transitions as well um, in addition to sort of business cycle um, ups and downs. All right, that was, a, I think, a good background about things that you like might need to know. Um, you know, as Nails predicted, maybe not that in-depth, but at least a little familiarity couldn't hurt you. Let's jump into some affirmative arguments then on this topic. I guess the sort of, well, I guess before we jump in, like one of the sort of big things that is going to complicate this topic is COVID-19. The like pandemic mm -hmm. has affected everything. And a lot of the sort of surge in recent literature about the federal jobs guarantee, both for and against, is in the context of the pandemic. Um, and so I think that does shape some of the app arguments that uh, can be made as well as a lot of the negative arguments. And so I guess it might be good to sort, sort of start with, um, you know, obviously the main thing that federal jobs guarantee does is like give people jobs. Um, what does that mean in the context of COVID-19? So I imagine, you know, the COVID crisis is just gonna be the easiest, you know, recent example to go to for the app to say, like maybe the, the status quo isn't working. Maybe we need to sort of have a, a better, you know, government response to, you know, crises that affect unemployment, that sort of thing. Um, like, I imagine this topic is going to play out kind of similar to if it were playing out in like 2010, right? When we were like mm -hmm. coming off the, the Great Recession, right? If people are going to be very 
ready and willing to point to like, look at this thing that just happened. Look at this massive wave of unemployment as just like a good example uh, to say like, here's the problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, and so that's a simple baseline is just like, it, it provides urgency to the topic. I don't even think that's like art, artificial in a way it sometimes is in debate. If you look at the number of articles that have come out on the jobs guarantee since COVID, it's a huge spike. Like some of that has already been happening because of like the democratic primary and the ideas that were happening there, but COVID really kicked it into gear. And there's a number of articles that talk about the jobs guarantee in the context of COVID and how we could be putting those people to work to do COVID related things in addition to sort of solving unemployment problems that have happened as a result of COVID. Um, so I think there's two different sorts of things there, right? There's the, it as an example of the type of business cycle thing that we'd be trying to solve and what kind of jobs we could give people and how those could be put to work to deal with COVID or other sort of substantive issues besides unemployment that exist, uh, which gets into maybe another category of argument, a division of arguments we'll talk about later. Yeah. I, yeah, both of those for sure exist. I agree the literature is there on the intersection of FJG and COVID. I actually find the first one to be more persuasive than the second one, though, I think. Although I think debaters' natural inclination would be to gravitate towards the second. Um, the first one here being, though, just like COVID creates this sort of or demonstrates this sort of problem of like economic fluctuations, massive unemployment, and FJG is good because it solves the unemployment problem. Whereas the second one is like, the jobs that the FDG provides solve COVID itself because we need to like sanitize against COVID, that sort of thing. Uh, I think debaters will want to do the second one naturally because they're like, oh, look, this is more specific and unique and not the same thing everyone has ready to go. But I think advantages of that sort are actually going to be less strategic, at least versus well-prepared negatives. And this is something I've, I, I remember thinking about when this topic was used at camp is I don't think the AF wants to put too many of their eggs in the like, these jobs are important jobs basket. And in fact, the more you do that, the less mm -hmm. strategic it becomes. Agreed. Because something to be aware of about the FJG is like, by its nature, it can't give you a very important job. And there's two reasons for that, or at least two reasons, maybe there's more. One is it's gotta be a temporary job. Remember we were just talking about how the function could be as an economic stabilizer where like, oh no, you're out of work because there's like a temporary lull in demand. And so you, go work for the federal government for a minute in the FJG. And then when the economy picks back up, you move back to the private sector. And so the jobs need to be something that you can like pick up and drop easily, you know? So you do something for a few months and then you go back to your work. If that something is building a bridge and you left halfway through and there's an unbuilt bridge, you've got a problem, right? And so the, the jobs can't be things that are like long-term, you got to do the whole thing. And then the second thing is by its nature, an FJG has to pay minimum wage. Now that doesn't mean it has to pay the current minimum wage, but it means whatever the FJG pays is going to be the minimum wage for the economy. Like imagine you said the FJG pays 15 bucks an hour. Every single business that offers a job that's under $15 an hour is either going out of business or has to raise its wages because no one's going to work for the $7.25 an hour when there's a, a guaranteed job paying 15. Uh, and so the FJG can't pay all that much. And so you, you have this combination of it's got to be low paying jobs and it's got to be sort of jobs that people can pick up and drop on the spot. And it becomes hard to explain why the FJG is like particularly good at getting super important things done. And then when you say like this thing is the most important thing, you run into the negative that says like, let's solve that EG by hiring people, but not guaranteeing the job, that sort of thing. There's two things I want to highlight from what Jacob just said that are super important. The picking up and dropping portion of it, I think is going to be a big part of negative arguments. A lot of the types of jobs that are talked about in the literature are things like infrastructure jobs. That comes up a ton. Uh, and Jacob brought up the building a bridge example. 
most of the historical examples that you look to for things like that, right, the New Deal era programs, that was an entirely different kind of world, right? When we said build a road, it was literally people out there with shovels, like digging up roads. Now, the people who are building roads and bridges have like very technical knowledge and years of training because there's really complicated equipment that needs to be used and like engineering principles that need to be understood. That's not something you can just pick up, start doing one day, do it for a couple of weeks and then drop, right? Those jobs in the modern economy require skills and training, number one. That's a huge problem for a lot of the sort of substantive advantages that like things we can solve using these jobs the app wants to talk about. The second thing Jacob also kind of brought up is those kind of apps are super susceptible to counter plans, advantage counter plans. A lot of people are going to talk about green jobs, for example. That's a huge component of the literature. Well, any advantage counter plan that, you know, like every debate team has in their back files about how to solve climate change also garner those same advantages. Fun fact, uh, my high school was built as part of the Works Progress Administration, and that probably explains why it looks terrible and feels like a prison. Uh, yeah, I totally agreed on this sort of like the world in the age of like the Works Progress Administration, just not the world that we live in today. And it, and I do think like a lot of the literature, as Nails pointed out, like the negative authors aren't super qualified, but they are just like making the very obvious argument of what jobs are you talking about? And it becomes a lot harder for the app to answer that question, um, the more specific they dig in. But I guess one thing that Nails did mention, which could serve as a second branch of affirmative arguments, is this sort of minimum wage issue, right? So uh, as Nails mentioned, whatever the federal jobs guarantee sets the wage at is basically the wage that everyone else now has to compete with or go out of business. Because again, no one's going to work for a, a crappy 7.25 an hour job if they could just get, you know, a job that's arguably better in a lot of ways, but pays more. Um, and, and one important point there too, is not just the wage. Most of these most of these programs that are proposed also include benefits, right? Yeah. Health insurance, retirement benefits, things like that that can be pretty expensive. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And things that are basically just like the bucket of uh, employment policies that Democrats would like to pass anyways, but just like smuggled into the federal jobs guarantee. And despite the fact that it's not mandated, in effect, it does change the entire market um, because now, you know, why would you work for a crappy food chain that doesn't give you health insurance, paid sick leave, maternity leave, whatever, if the federal jobs guarantee lets you dig a hole with a shovel and it pays you double with benefits. It's a um, sneaky universal healthcare program. Yeah, it, it really is. And uh, and so that could be another affirmative advantage area. You could just take all of the literature from the living wage, all of the literature from healthcare, all of the literature from like paid maternity leave, whatever, all of that now becomes a benefit uh, to the affirmative. Um, although I imagine some negatives will counterplan out of some of those things and just be like, do the federal jobs guarantee minus insert benefit that the app specified um, and then read your econ DA that are like uh, paid maternity leave or something. More generally, I think, you know, beyond getting to like some specific benefit, like plan key to dental care. I think the, the idea behind the app, the disadvantage of the app is just, uh, it, it comes back to this balance that you, is kind of crucial in the economy between labor and capital where mm -hmm. you, know, you have your individual workers and your unions that are trying to get as much as they can for the workers. And then you have the capital side of things, which is the owners, the, the people who hold stock in companies trying to get as much profit as they can out of the company, in which case they wanna pay as little as possible. And the, the question is, you know, how, how does this affect that balance? And the aft side of this argument is gonna be to say, well, in the status quo, workers are getting shafted, you know, the wages aren't rising enough and most of the benefits of business are going to the people who own the business and the app puts more power back in the hands of workers. And the reason it does that is just part of the thing that makes uh, workers sort of artificially hindered in competing is 
you, you can't afford to leave your job. <laughs> you know, mm. the, the business can afford to, to look longer, hire someone else. It's not going to starve if it doesn't have one more worker for a bit. Whereas the, the average worker, especially low-wage worker, might be looking for the first job they can get to keep their life going. And it creates this problem where workers might be willing to accept bad wages, slow, you know, terrible conditions, and so forth. And an argument the app might have is if you have a backup job, a job guarantee, it makes it easier to search for jobs in the private sector without being desperate and then demand higher wages or better benefits and so forth. And so whether it specifically is dental care or something else, just the general existence of a fallback job makes it easier for workers to, to bargain for better results in the, the labor process with business. Yeah, I tend to find this category of F arguments sort of the core and most, most persuasive of the sort of stock arguments. I'd categorize it as like worker bargaining power or, or worker leverage. The idea, like Jacob said, is if you always have a fallback, there's always a job you know you can get, you're willing to put up with a lot less than you would be in a world where losing a job means you lose your income, you lose your health care, you lose everything, right? So that even extends to things like working conditions, workplace harassment, things along those lines. People who have more options are less willing to put up with terrible conditions, whether it's income, benefits, harassment, just safety standards in a workplace, any of those things. So I think the analogy you know, to use in the literature often is think of it as a public option for jobs, right? In the healthcare context, the public option, the idea is by having a lower cost, lower administrative cost plan, you create competition. The other healthcare plans have to then meet if they want to stay in business, right? So it brings everything down. This is the exact opposite. It pushes upward pressure on the standards uh, of other jobs. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be one of the core arguments. And I do think bargaining power is probably a good term for it. Uh, now, going back to something we were mentioning a second ago, I think that the, the automatic stabilization sort of argument is going to be the other core AFARG, and this one can be taken in sort of two different main directions. One is the sort of just the focus on unemployment being bad for people who are unemployed. You know, it sucks to be unemployed. You can't afford things. And I like, you know, being able to feed myself. And so the AF being a backstop against, you know, poverty and so forth, I think you could argue it effectively solves that problem because it reduces cyclical unemployment. Uh, but then the second direction you could take it is that effect on the larger economy, e.g. preventing recessions from turning into depressions, that sort of thing, and how you want to make sure that, say, the, the next downturn doesn't spiral out of control because, say, more unemployment equals fewer people working and more government social services in the form of, like, having to pay welfare and so forth, and then things get worse and worse rather than getting better. And that that sort of uh, counter-cyclical effect of sort of... Uh, keeping the economy in the same direction uh, and acting as like a, like a, what's the word? When you're bowling and you have the, the gutter, it's like a gutter guard. It's like an economic gutter guard where if you, if you go too far one direction, it sort of bounces you back. That sort of effect when keeping the economy from the outright depression, I think is the other big argument the app might have uh, in terms of just like, we want to avoid economic collapses and the app can help do that. Yeah, and so one other sort of effect that the federal jobs guarantee would have on the economy is by sort of reducing large inequalities between different groups in society, particularly those most marginalized. So not just the poor, but like racial minorities, gender minorities, those most likely to be disenfranchised and, uh, and unemployed. And not only could you derive a sort of soft left position from it, just like, hey, like maybe sort of structural inequality that's based in like racism is, is bad, um, but like that also does have implications for the economy because just like growing amounts of inequality it doesn't tend to help growth. If anything, it hurts it. And it does have other effects um, on society that there are a lot of good impact cards for. Yeah, I think that's going to be a big theme in the literature generally, rising wages, inequality, 
poverty, all those sort of straightforward economic advantages. I think the issue that a lot of those things get into is that they're also really easy to counter plan for, uh, which is why I think most apps are gonna be some combination of these things, not one thing or another. They're not just gonna be about inequality, they be about inequality and bargaining power, right? So they maintain their ability to position themselves better against a UBI or something, right? Whereas if it's just inequality, if it's just poverty, tons of counter plans could also get at those same things. One other set of arguments that I assume will show up because it, it gets referenced a fair deal amount in the literature and it probably represents what I would think is just like the, the simplest philosophical set of arguments to gravitate to for debaters who incline towards that is this question about the dignity of work uh, that you'll see show up. Uh, there's mm -hmm. definitely some people who argue, for example, this shows up, I think, in a lot of literature comparing the FJG to the UBI that, you know, there, there's something, you know, innately important about not just like having money and, and not being in poverty, but sort of working for the common good and that you are in some way producing that, that benefit for yourself. That they're like, just like something uh, for whatever reason uh, inherent to the human condition that you know, it's undignified not to be able to work uh, and that working is like, you know, crucially important for that. You, you have a lot of people argue for that claim in a lot of different philosophical traditions. And so I think one app argument you'll see sometimes is just like, it is important to make sure everyone can work. Uh, and so if the app does that and it kind of blends solves poverty, but without doing that, then you have a, a key solvency deficit of like the UBI doesn't give people the dignity of, of working. They end up making money doing nothing and then they solve poverty, but at, at some other cost. And that's not just a, there's philosophical literature about that that's pretty deep, but there's also a lot of social science research about the effects of having a job and not having a job has on tons of things, mental health, sort of community, cohesion, crime, um, even when controlling for income, poverty, those kinds of things. And so I think that's going to be a big component of the literature, both for apps and also probably as a, as like a hook in for a lot of negative uh, critiques too. So I think we referenced this earlier um, as not the app position we would gravitate to, but it is probably going to be the one that a lot of debaters do, which is going to be the federal jobs guarantee for particular jobs. I think the most common one is just going to be some version of the Green New Deal, because the Green New Deal actually does include, uh, amongst its many recommendations, uh, a federal jobs guarantee. And mm -hmm. Uh, the sort of importance of putting people to work, working on green projects. My my guess is that the better version of this app, it, insofar as you want to take this in the direction of specifying a single job, is that the version of the app that tries to solve all of climate change writ large is just not going to win against literally any advantage counter plan. But the version of the app that does seem more viable is just one that does something about mitigating local environmental harm. So just things that like reduce air pollution, things that just like plant trees, things that, you know, just restore uh, life to devastated environments and stuff like that. Like things that are like relatively local in nature and so do have mostly just local effects and so aren't easily, ex so aren't like obviously existential in nature. But I do think that's like where the literature probably indicates the better uh, sort of climate version of this app will go. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But I think to a certain extent, it's also still really uh, susceptible to a counterpoint that says, okay, let's, whatever great program you're talking about, the planting trees in Pittsburgh program or whatever, let's just give them money to hire people to do that. Like that doesn't mean we have to hire everyone who's unemployed. Yeah, I have a few thoughts about this. My first is, I think that counter plan that Chris just listed is one that just every negative should have ready to go. Because I think a, a large number of apps are going to do the unstrategic thing that's going to link to that, which is you say this job is important, let's give the job to literally anyone who walks in the door. Counter plan, give this job to people who are qualified and pay them more than the minimum wage to do it if we really want this thing to get done. Uh, and I think that just devastates any app with an advantage about getting a particular job done. Now, that being said, I'm not going to go so far as to say 
that makes specifying a job or set of jobs unstrategic. I think it just makes that that type of advantage the wrong reason to do it. I think there can be valuable strategic um, reasons to specify as the affirmative. I think that is sort of more defensive than offensive in nature, which is that, you know, a lot of the core negative objections are going to be like, what are these millions of jobs you claim to create? How do you guarantee they're productive, that people can do them and so forth? And I think the easiest way to answer those sorts of objections is just to have, just like, pick your best examples of what jobs you are capable of defending uh, when they say, like, what jobs, how are they qualified, how can you pay them? And, like, just, you, you could pick literally anything as the app, right? It's like, think of the, the best example you can possibly come up with of just, like, jobs that you think meet all the criteria of being a good FJG job, and then defend those, not because, like, those jobs key to some impact, but because maybe those jobs are more insulated against the private sector crowd ad argument. You can say that planting trees maybe doesn't uniquely solve warming, but it's a job that is not being done sufficiently in the private sector anyway because of, you know, externalities. And so when they say private sector crowd out, you say my green job guarantee doesn't crowd out the private sector because there's already a dearth of private sector demand in that. And so that's how I think about it is I think you can, there's good reason to specify to pick the best version of the app versus objections even if you're not claiming advantages like proactively as your main source of offense on the jobs that you're, you're doing, they can still be useful for answering you know, DAs and such. Yeah, two categories there that are super important for generating those kinds of examples. Jacob brought up the first, which is just things the market would never solve for. There's no profit motive in planting trees, right? So it has to be a government program. The other thing would be jobs where there are shortages of workers uh, that the market isn't providing for. So one common example you see in the literature is home health aides. For example, we don't have enough of them. They're really important as the uh, population is getting older. Uh, we don't have enough. Uh, we don't have a system set up where people can, you know, tons of people can live in like nursing homes or assisted care facilities or stuff. So more and more have uh, healthcare for older people has to be provided in the home. And we just don't have people to do it. Yeah, uh, the the senior care is definitely one of the examples that shows up because I forget which one of them. One of the two policies that Larry listed has that as like they're one of their main examples of jobs. Mm -hmm. That being said, it's also, I think, one of the ones that's more attacked with the negative in the form of just like, that's not the job we want people dropping the moment the economy picks up. Just be like, sorry, grandpa, I'm going back to work at the factory. Um, and so like, obviously, you know, there, there's arguments back and forth and just, you know, pick the ones you're most, most capable of defending. And I guess a, a related question is something along the lines of like, can the F like legitimately specify the jobs and do they have to? Uh, what do y'all think about that? Like separate from strategic value, is that a, a rule that the app um, may not do or must do? I don't think they have to. I think it's probably acceptable to specify some amount of the jobs because most of these proposals that actually exist in the world have ideas of what those jobs would be. Most of the time, they're more examples, right? They're like things like this than they are like everyone will do X, Y, or Z thing because we just don't know that because the number, number of people who are in the program would change over time, for example. The needs of the country would change over time. But I think having some of those things in your proposal to say, you know, here are like a good representation of the menu of things that would probably be included, things like this. And we can have a discussion about whether these are the types of, like having these types of jobs is good or bad without getting too much into you know, too locked in, I think is how this conversation should probably happen, which is a really wishy-washy answer, I guess. But I think it's probably okay for the app to do it, I guess, is where I would go. I, I just don't see why they would, it, it doesn't seem like they would be not topical if they specified some set of jobs. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could say they're extra topical, but in this, this particular instance, I'm not too mm -hmm. worried about that 
because it just is part of the conversation in literature, first of all. So I think it's, it's very core to the topic, what those jobs look like. And second, if the benefit is just because of these particular jobs you're talking about, then the negative can just advantage counter plan, right? Like as we've been talking about, there's no real strategic benefit there for the AF if they're going into smart neg. And as long as that's true, I really don't see a big problem with it. This, by the way, is why extra topicality is never unfair. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I agree with all of that. I think I agree. It doesn't make any sense, I don't think, to say that the app is not topical if they have failed to specify or if they specify a subset of jobs. Like if they do specify that that is like violate, you know, the resolution because they didn't defend the whole resolution or something like that. Like in no world would a jobs guarantee ever make every single job at every single sector a guaranteed job where every job from like janitor to CEO is something that someone could walk in and get 7, 15 hours to do. Um, that's not, I think, what anyone means by job guarantee. That you know, you are guaranteed to get a job, not that every job is guaranteed. Uh, so I don't, I still don't think that they can't specify a job. Now, do they have to? I also agree that they don't have to. Uh, it, it does seem that there's always going to be some degree of ambiguity. A lot of these programs are just like the federal government, you know, delegating authority to local governments, which they, they have then couldn't mandate do anything without creating like sort of multi-agent problems or setting up contracts mm-hmm. with the private sector, where which jobs are available might depend on like which you know nonprofits have the best bids and whatnot. Uh, and so it also seems bad for the app to be required to specify a subset. I think that it just kind of comes down to strategic value, which is the app probably likely wants to anyway, if it can. And that if the app is just like too vague, that probably benefits the neg more than the app when the neg gets to say, look, there's no guarantee this program works. How do you know there's enough jobs to get done that the jobs are productive and so forth. And without examples, the app will have a hard time answering that, not an easier one. Yeah, so I think, I think the sweet spot is sort of here are uh, you know, a handful of examples of the types of jobs I'm talking about, but it's not exhaustive. Yeah. I think it's the correct place for the AF to land here. Seems to mirror the literature best. Seems pretty fair. There are a couple other kinds of specification that I've been hearing about too that maybe we should talk about. The first case would be specifying sort of the, uh, not the types of jobs, but like compensation and other factors surrounding the job. So what is the minimum wage for these jobs? What are the benefits that are provided those vary from proposal to proposal. Um, they also seem very important to the efficacy of a lot of those proposals, right? It seems very core to the discussion. So what do we think about that? Should the AF be able to specify $15 minimum wage, health benefits, two weeks vacation time and paternity, uh, paternity, paternity leave? For this one, I think my answer is gonna be very similar, which is obviously the AF doesn't have to specify. I think that's generally the answer to most, does the AF have to specify questions is no, there's all sorts of details. Uh, mm-hmm. and no non-arbitrary list of ones that the app is you know, beholden to, but that the app might want to anyway, such that they can more effectively answer stuff like these jobs aren't worth working. And you say, no, they, I give them health benefits, uh, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think the app is allowed to specify any of these details if they want to. They're obviously still topical if they do, because a, a, a government guarantee of a 750 hour job is still as much a job guarantee as a government guarantee of a $15 an hour job. And it's all just a question of whether the app would like to do that or not. So to what degree is the AF beholden to whatever they specify in the one So The AF says $15 uh, minimum wage for the federal jobs guarantee. Next says counter plan, $7.25. Um, just keep it at the standard federal mm-hmm. minimum wage. Avoids inflation or something. AF I think once justifies. the AF does it, like that's, they've done it. I don't think there's going back. Yeah, I think I'm in, in agreement with Chris on that one. Yeah, that seems that seems right. So, it, you know, it, pick, pick and choose your poison sort of thing. Um, I do think a lot of negs are just going to be like, oh, like whatever minimum wage you specify, I'm just going to change the details of the minimum wage. That's going to be you know, one of the off. Um, whatever benefits you specify, I'm just going to get rid of that one benefit. That's the, the other counter plan. You know? 
Exactly. Um, that, that same sort of thing applies. Although it's slightly trickier with those advantage, like those kind of plans and the advantage kind of plans we were talking earlier, because the big problem with the minimum wage in the literature is that it causes unemployment, right? Which can't happen with a jobs guarantee. Uh, at least not in the same way. You might have like higher paying jobs turning into federal jobs guarantee jobs, but you don't have an increase in unemployment. Um, so it's not quite one-to-one like it is in those situations. Um, yeah, I mean, you could just like read that counter plan with like the crowd out argument, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the neg links to it somewhat, but you know, if the minimum wage was literally right. the standard as opposed to doubling it, you know, I do think that that would uh, create enough of a link differential that the neg could get something out of it. The, the last kind of specification then, that I've heard discussion of would be specifying a jobs guarantee for particular groups of people as opposed to particular jobs. So in this case, it wouldn't be a universal program. It'd be a program that applies only to some group. So a couple of examples I've heard only to youth, people under 25, only to prisoners who have been released, like ex-felons, for example. So one of the other big proposals, other than the Paul et al., and the Turknerva one is this Randall Ray proposal, which does seem to allow the affirmative to specify what qualifications a participant could have in order to qualify for the federal jobs guarantee. And so that could be age range, uh, gender, family status, income, uh, certain level of educational attainment, um, stuff like that. Um, and so under the Ray proposal, I mean, Ray is just straight up willing to admit, yeah, like if you if you aren't qualified because you are out of this age range, you don't qualify for federal for the federal jobs guarantee. Yeah, so uh, first off, I, I, I'm not gonna say I'm confident I'm pronouncing Cherneva's name right, but I'm confident that whatever you were saying is not the correct pronunciation. That is fair. But Look, I saw a T and an E-A somewhere in there uh, with yeah. an H somewhere, okay? Yeah. yeah, there does seem to be some literature suggesting that a jobs program could be less than universal, uh, namely the, the Ray proposal. And so I, I think to the credit of people who want to specify, they're not just like on face as obviously grammatically wrong as they are on every other topic. I think you can make a plausible claim that this plan is consistent with definitions of, of job guarantees. Like you can find definitions that support specifying and then it becomes merely a pragmatic question whether those definitions are better than the definitions that say a jobs guarantee is economy-wide, that sort of thing. As opposed to like the, the compulsory voting topic where you just have to sort of like ignore basic rules of grammar. Uh, to get that conclusion. This one, at least you, you get to have your, is our plans good or bad rather than like, is grammar or topics themselves good or bad? It comes down That's to, not, I, I think there's a probably a reasonable spectrum here. A lot of those arguments seem to be saying there can be some exceptions to sort of the nature of a jobs guarantee, right? It doesn't have to be for people over age 65 or people in X, Y, or Z condition, as opposed to being very, very narrow cast, which I think is what a lot of these apps are going to try to do, right? So do you think something like only a jobs guarantee for ex-prisoners is a federal jobs guarantee. Yeah, on this question of specification, um, when it's specifying a group of people rather than a, a type of job or a payment, uh, I, I think I'm still with the neg on like, a definition that allows that doesn't seem to be a good one for the purpose of this topic because something like the, the prisoners app just strikes me as very different from the rest of the literature in a way that like a lot of the stuff is not gonna capture. And just like, not what it seems to me when I would think of just like the, you just said like the federal government, uh, the United States should provide a federal jobs guarantee. I don't think you mean like 
oh, well, everyone's guaranteed a job as long as you go commit a felony, <laughs> that, that sort the, of thing. The, yeah, the, the, the reductio of that kind of interpretation seems to me to be pretty relevant here, right? If it, a job's guaranteed just means someone is guaranteed a job, that isn't like any government contract with a worker, a jobs guarantee, as long as a person has a guarantee of a job from the federal government, we have a jobs guarantee. That seems pretty wrong. Yeah, I, I imagine specifying like people who have already signed contracts with the government uh, to do like contracted labor should have a guaranteed job. Right. But with the advantages like the government shouldn't break promises that already made. Exactly. Like yeah, I, I think I'm with, I'm with the <laughs> negative here. I just think I'm with the negative more for like, that's a bad topic reasons than the normal like, app doesn't understand grammar reasons. And this is, this is like a, there's no bright line here, but I think that general heuristic, if it is a program that is broadly adopted, broadly applicable, but there are exceptions, that seems to be okay. Because there are exceptions to sort of any universal program. Generally, there are edge cases, but something that is very, very narrow only for this group of people seems to go against the spirit of a jobs guarantee. Yeah, and I, I think this is what you're getting at, but to state it more explicitly, I do think it's fine if the app doesn't say like literally everyone is eligible mm -hmm. for a job. Like obviously the, the trivial case is you don't have to employ like kids, like the job yes. guarantee doesn't have to be available to like a kindergarten or something like that. And so like, what about other picks? Like the government should give jobs to prisoners because then they'd have to leave prison and they could escape or something like that. Like the, the, the reverse mm -hmm. of that app where you pick out of prisoners or something like that. I do think versus those sorts of counterplans, perm to the counterplan does seem pretty persuasive to me of like, look, the app would still be guaranteeing jobs to other like 98% mm -hmm. of people in the workforce. And that is that is the jobs guarantee if there is one, I think does seem correct. Even if the app that guarantees jobs to like 1% of the workforce is not topical. Yeah, there's, there's no bright line here for me, but I think in general, if you're saying jobs guarantee except, then yeah. I think it's probably fine. But if you're saying jobs guarantee only for, insert group, then I think it's not. The jobs guarantee except for non-prisoners. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that as a, as a heuristic, uh, yes. even if it can't be a hard and fast rule. <laughs> um, now moving on to negative arguments. Who's going to list off like 48 counterplans? Is that what we're going to do? <laughs> uh, I guess we should start with the like core DAs first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so one, this would spend a lot of money and would cost a lot of money. The end. All right, what are the more interesting ones? Yeah, there's a lot of flavors of the econ disadvantage. And this yeah. is kind of important because I think you'll have what structurally looks like the same arg from the neg, where they say FJG hurts economy, economic collapse super bad or something like that. But where there's a lot of different spins on it. You know, one round, it might be that the FJG costs like a multiple trillion dollars per year. And then that, you know, crowds out uh, like private sector investment or whatever. And the next it's the FJG takes jobs and that crowds out private sector employment. And then the next, it's, it creates like busy work or something like that, or reduces incentives to, to for higher education because people will just go straight out of high school into the FJG instead of like getting diplomas that allow them to go into like high tech sectors and whatnot. There's a lot of different versions of like this bad for economy. Mm -hmm. And so rather than saying like the econ disad, it's like the econ disads on this topic. And you probably want to have uh, A, sort of separate responses to each, and then B, probably the ability to like either go for some combination of them or respond to some combination of them if the negative raises all of them. Because I think right. there's a lot of ways it could be good or bad for the economy. Yeah, you need to approach the spending disad, the inflation disad, the crowd out disad in different ways. Those are different arguments, even though they lead to the same sort of terminal impacts generally. A related right. point, I think, is that I think not just the different links, but the different impacts are going to be kind of relevant here, it is something I see often conflated in discussing uh, econ impacts is Econ growth 
as sort of a long run trend? Like, is the economy growing or uh, is it you know, not growing? Is it growing at a fast or slow rate? And the question of economic collapse or due to depression mm-hmm. and so forth. You know, one is like, what, like looking from now to the future, what's the sort of average trend? The other is about the sort of short-term fluctuations, like what happens if some new bubble bursts all of a sudden, and then we have an unexpected recession, what happens from that? And I think those are not quite the same impact. You know, the impacts of economic growth are things like the United States having a strong military and be able to project power because we have an economy that supports it, or the ability to invest in new things that solve like, you know, tech, like technology down the road, or like renewables or whatnot, come from a sort of like a generally strong economy. Whereas the impacts of collapse might be things like diversionary war or things like that. And I think my impression is that more so the AF is better suited to have this sort of uh, recession, you know, freak accident, bubble burst, we're not ready for it type collapse impacts. Because the main AF econ arguments are more about having a stable economy, a backstop in case things go bad. The NEG, I think, is better suited to have more growth related impacts, not necessarily about collapse being bad so much as growth being good. Because the neg is just going to be like, if we have this FDG in place in perpetuity, our economy is just generally going to kind of suck all the time because we're going to have weak private sector, lots of unnecessary spending, lots of busy work that could have been more productive. And so the impacts of the neg are not going to be some specific collapse happening at a point in time so much as our economy is never going to do a whole lot in general. And so I think the neg wants to say growth is important and the app wants to say collapse is more important. I, I think that's generally true. Two things to, to add there. I think on the negative side of the ledger, the better economic arguments are the ones Jacob is talking about, um, about crowd out, right? We're going to be replacing less efficient, less productive work, I think is how the negative would put it, with government jobs that are like digging holes and filling them would be like the parody of the negative argument. We're going to take people, you know, because we're raising, because uh, of the spending and the raising of wages and the upward pressure, right, that we talked about as being an advantage of the F, we actually just take away productive jobs from the private sector to create unproductive jobs in the public sector. And although people have money, like the economy isn't growing because we're not doing anything with that with that money that's productive. That's a better version of the argument, but I think a lot of the easier version of the argument that people are more familiar with will actually be more sort of collapse type arguments, right? If you really tease out what people are going to do with the spending disad and the inflation arguments, those are going to be like, if we spend too much money, inflation will get out of control, that will lead to a bubble that bursts and maybe people will be employed, but like the economy will suck, there'll be a general collapse in, in welfare. Um, I think those arguments are easier because they're more familiar. So I think there will be a lot of them. Um, on the growth question, also, this is an argument that I've seen, kind of a novel argument that I've seen a couple of authors make, which is that growth is bad in the way that we're doing it right now because of uh, you know, the, the environmental consequences, global warming, things like that. And the jobs guarantee makes degrowth palatable and possible in a way that is, is sustainable. Um, so that might be something to ready to have for the one AR, for example, if if the negative goes with that kind of argument. Actually, I we do an app that has sort of both halves of that. Like mm-hmm. they both have the like economic collapse is super bad as their advantage, and they also say, but also we don't want fast growth either. We just want like a, a slow, steady economy, a sustainable, a sustainable growth. path that you know doesn't have big ups and downs that allows us to get to a point of sustainability. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I do imagine that a lot of negs will just try to go in the collapse direction um, as, as kind of Tice predicted. Um, and not only is that, I think, not the right move uh, for the reason mentioned above, but also just because like, I do think that the AF answers to just like upfront cost are quite strong. Um, and then the AF answers to the more interesting econ arguments like crowd out 
um, get a, a little less strong. And there's, I think, more robust to be, to be had there that favors the negative. Um, by the way, we've mentioned crowd out a few times and alluded to it. Does anyone want to like actually explain what the crowd out argument is? That's a good point. So I think there's there's various versions of crowd out, by the way. The, the main one that I assume that you're referring to is just crowding out private sector jobs. So, you know, private businesses need to hire people to do things. And if everyone is going to the government to get their guaranteed job, they're not going to do things. And that's a problem if private businesses have, you know, a natural profit motive to be productive and then the government does not. If the government is creating busy work, like they tell you to go like paint a mural or something because they don't have anything better for you to do, and you go do that, instead of joining, I don't know, going to be a teacher or something, or that's actually good, that's a government job, but <laughs> going to some private sector. Like um, actually, I mean, it still could be relevant. You could also crowd out public sector non-guaranteed jobs. So it's not even that teaching is a bad example. The point being is if you go into the jobs guarantee program instead of doing something productive, public or private or nonprofit or whatever, then there's fewer people uh, that are working productive jobs in the private sector, and then that hurts the economy there. Now, there's also relevant questions about the way government spending can crowd out uh, private investment, because when the government spends lots of money, that affects the economy in terms of people's willingness to save and invest. And then that can have an influence not only on you know, private sector employment, but also on private sector investment. And so you might also hear the term crowd out show up in other contexts, like at the internal link level of like an inflation-based argument. Um, yeah, so I don't yeah. think the crowd can only show up one place, but I would think the main term, the main time you hear that term is in terms of crowding out public or private sector jobs. Yeah, in most cases, the, the crowd out investment credit argument relies on some sort of internal link of inflation or at least inflation expectations, right, which I think makes it pretty much in most cases synonymous with the inflation disad. The argument is government spends a lot of money that devalues the currency, inflation goes up, then the natural response to that by the government um, by law actually is to increase uh, interest rates. When interest rates are higher, that essentially means the cost of investment is higher. You have to, you know, to take out a loan to build a factory is more expensive when interest rates are high. So in that way, government investment, if inflation takes place as a result, crowds out private investment. By the way, the F answer to a lot of this is something we discussed earlier, which is this is where modern monetary theory has a lot of impact and why a lot of the AF authors who think the FJG is good also subscribe to modern monetary theories because the folks who believe that don't care so much or don't think that the sort of inflation concerns are a real concern because government printing money just is how the government ought to raise money. And the kind of logic of that is the economy is naturally less than full demand because some portion of money is, is saved, right? So like you have people who want to work and you have people who want to buy things, but the people who want to buy things never quite buy as much as they theoretically want to buy because they want to save for the future. And so there's this little gap between supply and demand in terms of the labor market. And so it's okay for the government to like print and spend money as long as it's filling that gap between amount of work that people want to do and amount of work that people want done uh, so as to reach full employment. And as long as you're there and not above it, then you're still fine. There's at least the gist of modern monetary theory's take on that. Right. And this goes back to what I said earlier is essentially what they're saying is the constraint is real. It exists in the real economy, how much uh, like uh, idle resources there are, whether labor or material resources exist in the economy. As long as those resources exist and are not being utilized, that's then you can spend more. You can utilize those. You can bring them into, uh, you can mobilize them. The second you are taking resources that are already mobilized, right? And co-opting them for government investment, that's when you're doing something that is, is negative, MMT would say. 
Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, Lawrence, a little bit of back, I guess we can go a little bit deeper here too. Lawrence, earlier you said this came into prominence because of Bernie Sanders and some advisors on his campaign. I think it's been given a little bit more credibility also because of just recent history. It used to be the case that we had lots of problems like in the 70s with inflation. And there were a lot of predictions of inflation because of spending in like the 2000s, the 2010s, huge budget deficits, the Stimulus Act in 2010 or 2009 were predicted to create out of control inflation. And if anything, we haven't had enough inflation. We've been struggling to hit our inflation targets for like 15, 20 years now. And that seems to have given a little bit more credence to uh, some of the experts that are, that are pushing this. All right. Uh, one other, I guess, major negative set of arguments is going to be related to what we discussed uh, earlier is just like, how does this program work? Like, it's a defensive argument, uh, but it is a really strong one. Um, like, I really just do have trouble envisioning how a federal jobs guarantee comes about. So like, not only is there the obvious problem of like, what jobs are there? Because you can't have jobs that are too important. Otherwise, people leaving in mass exodus whenever the economy gets better is, is bad. But you can't have jobs that are like super unimportant because uh, why bother having them in the first place? Um, and so like, there's that problem. But also like, how do you administer this? Like what infrastructure is put in place to ensure that this happens? Like you're dealing with literally millions and millions of new jobs, especially in the age of COVID unemployment. How does this even work? And I, I do think that's like a pretty persuasive negative argument. Just yes, very much so. A little anecdote here is I recall at the TOC in 2015, this is the year that the topic was living wage. Mm-hmm. We were traveling to the tournament one morning and we were in a taxi. The taxi driver, we were starting to have a conversation. We were talking about debate. He's like, oh, the topic's minimum wage. And so he just starts asking some basic questions about like how a living wage would be implemented, like how it's effective and how do you avoid like various sort of, you know, solvency type problems. And then the, the kid who had been debating this topic for like going on five months now was like really struggling, like struggling hard to answer this taxi driver's <laughs> process. And I, was, I was just like very persuaded. <laughs> and it goes to show yeah. like, the reason that happened is because a lot of debaters in the first five months of the topic had not been asking those questions. They hadn't been you know, pushing on the details enough such that someone could be very successful, make it to Elam's of the TOC, not having had to deal with those sorts of pushes. And I, I would think they're on this topic, even more so than the minimum wage topic, those sorts of questions are very strong. Like, can you get fired? Are you then just out of luck or do you, you just get sent to another job? They're, they're like what, if you, what if there's like malfeasance? What if you do something where you should get fired? What happens? Yeah. I, I think a lot of apps are just going to face plant in CrossX. I would strongly suggest, like, actually, I would do CrossX practices on a topic like this. Like, oh, practice yeah. both asking hard questions of the FJG advocate and defending, you know, your vision of the FJG versus those CrossX questions. Because I think CrossX has been able to be very important on just, just like, does this work or not? I would try to find like little factoids that you can deploy in those situations too, right? Someone says. Oh, what kind of jobs, you know, you ask, what kind of jobs will there be? And they'll be like, well, they're infrastructure jobs. We'll build like roads and, and bridges. And you say, okay, you know, did you know it takes eight months to be certified to use like X device that we use to build roads? So like people have to train for eight months before they can even do this job you're talking about? Things, things like that. I, I guess this segues nicely into what I assume is going to be the bulk of the negative conversation, which is counterplans, which is if you look at the sort of Democratic primaries, you have Andrew Yang advocating heavily for UBI and you have Bernie Sanders who like kind of pushed an FJG, but it's like very low in his policy priorities. Um, mm-hmm. But you have them arguing back and forth between the advantages to their proposals. And Yang's main push against Bernie Sanders' FJG is just like, I don't know 
what this program could look like. I know what a UBI looks like. It's straightforward. You just give everyone money. Like there's not that much to it. Um, but this like give everyone a job problem is like so much harder. And I think Yang was quite persuasive in just being like, I don't know what Sanders answer to this question is. And I don't, I don't think I've ever heard a good one. Honestly, like, I think that's part of the reason why UBI just gained a lot more traction, well, among other reasons as well. But uh, I guess that segues nicely into the, the main negative bulk of arguments, which are going to be like counterplans to solve things. And I guess we can start with the UBI since it's the big one in the literature. Yeah, um, the UBI is going to be huge. And I guess it's actually worth defining because there was a UBI topic not too long ago, but maybe a good portion of the data from this topic weren't around for that. In fact, I'm not, that might have been so far back that maybe nobody is. Was that three years ago? In any case, in recent history, there's a UBI topic. Uh, so the UBI stands for universal basic income. And it's very simply the idea that the, the government just cuts everyone a check. So just imagine you get like $10,000 a year from the government, not for doing anything, just the end, right? The government just always gives people money. And the idea being that the, the real goal of these jobs, right? The reason you want to guarantee people jobs is so that they aren't in poverty. So they get paid for those jobs. Well, why not just give them the money? Especially if these jobs weren't going to be productive jobs in the first place. If we were just going to have to like find something for them to do, like dig a hole and fill it back in then why even make them do the job? Why not just give them the money and, and cut out that whole hassle? And then you get the benefit of solving poverty with less of the overhead costs, less of the wasted time, and sort of more you know, regulatory simplicity and efficiency. And you'll find that a lot of libertarians, actually, who you'd normally expect to be very anti-social service, and they are, will make an exception. A lot of libertarians are quite fine with the UBI on that grounds of, like, this is a very, the, the simplest, most minimal solution the government could give to still deal with poverty. And so that, that's kind of part of the appeal. And then one related term that I think is also worth defining here that came up on that topic and people might not be aware of is the negative income tax, uh, mm -hmm. which is basically the same thing as UBI in all but name. And so if you see negative income tax, I think you treat it as very similar to UBI. A negative income tax works like this. It's just, if you make below a certain amount, you end up getting money back from the government. So functionally, it's like people who are poor get a UBI and people who are rich, they're not. Uh, and the, the benefit of the, UB, of the negative income tax is it, it kind of seems like the UBI would be better, right? It's like, well, why give $10,000 to Jeff Bezos every year, right? You know, when we could just give $10,000 to the people in poverty. Now, that being said, the reason I said these are functional equivalent is because like when you, when you do the math out, they end up having the identical effect on distribution of income de depending on how you define them. Because like, supposing you give $10,000 per year extra to the, the rich people, that money comes from taxing rich people more, the people who pay the taxes, and then in the paying out at that level. And so you could set up a UBI or an NIT, if you work the numbers right, to have the exact same effect because the money that you'd be giving to rich people ends up coming from the rich people and there's no net difference there. And so the argument for the UBI is just like, it's the easier way to do it. You don't have to measure people's income and there's less regulatory hurd hurdle in just cutting everyone a check and the money comes from the rich people anyway, so it cancels that part out. And then for the NIT, it's usually sort of like perceptually people like it when you don't give Jeff Bezos a ten thousand dollar check anyway, and so it might be a bit more popular. Although there are, there are you know flip sides to that argument too, right? There are people who there's a big like meta debate in the social science literature here is between universal and means tested programs. And although means tested programs pull better, they tend to be less resilient over time than universal programs, right? Think. Medicare, everyone gets a Medicare. So no one is going to, or social security. So like no one's really in the boat to get rid of it. But Medicaid and unemployment insurance, those are programs aimed at particular demographics and are much more politically controversial, susceptible to being attacked by, uh, by interests than universal programs. 
Yeah, I also found that sort of perception argument more persuasive in 2018 prior to the rise of Andrew Yang. But like now that UBI is in the national conversation, it's like very clear that it's the much more politically salient uh, conversation to be had. Like if you pulled the average person about UBI versus NIT nowadays, like clearly UBI would win out just because everyone knows about it um, because of the political conversations that have been had. Um, yeah, they're also very similar to each other relative to the FDG. And so those minor distinctions are probably going to be less relevant on this topic where the app is stuck with something that's very different than, say, UBI versus NIT on the UBI topic. Point being is this is probably going to be like the closest thing that you'll hear a lot because it's just like one of the, the core alternatives to the FJG and does a very similar thing. And so I would expect uh, the UBI counterplan to show up a lot on this topic. I think it pairs well with arguments about sort of those bureaucratic inefficiencies of the FJG because that's the main difference with the UBI is it doesn't do the work in the first place. Uh, and so I think the UBI counterplan can work very effectively. It also, by the way, I think does pretty good versus that degrowth app we were talking about. A lot of the, the people who write about UBI also talk about mm -hmm. how that could you know, be in the same sort of direction of degrowth. And so UBI is the core one. That being said, there's also a lot of app literature explaining why the FJG is better. And so there's, there's a lot of depth on both sides of FJG versus UBI, which one's the preferable and, policy. And there are perm cards that are written too, um, pretty explicitly, oh, yeah. which is rare for the topics that we have in LD actually. Yeah, but I think that's right. The two main points of comparison I think you're going to see in each direction would be sort of the administrative problems with the FJG versus the UBI in favor of the NEG, plus like maybe some of the like work crowd out arguments too uh, could work there. And the app is going to focus on things like the dignity of work, right? So like, sure, this is like, functionally, we're giving people money either way, but are we giving them money to do nothing, you know, the app would say, or we're giving them money to do something and what's actually better for uh, the welfare of those people and the community in general. It does seem though, like if you just kind of take a brief perusing through the UBI literature versus FJG, it seems like most of them are concerned with the critique of work. Um, and so mm -hmm. not just the sort of like, uh, you know, don't tie your value to your ability to like be productive, uh, sort of like soft cap K type literature, but also just like, there are also a lot of people that can't work. And so we might as well just put one program in that just sort of solves the problem of like, having to have multiple different welfare programs working uh, kind of not even that well together. And so the UBI just like might say like, look, you know, some people just can't work disabilities or, or whatnot, just give them money, like problem solved. Um, right. And there's also, you know, dovetailing with that, the idea that maybe there just will be fewer productive jobs to be done in the future because we'll be able to do things more efficiently with automation, right? Maybe all the jobs that will, there'll be fewer jobs that actually are worth you know, in a productivity point of view worth doing and the requirements for those jobs in terms of training and education will be much higher. And so they won't be, you know, practicable for, for us to give those jobs to everybody. And so instead, we should give everyone a UBI and just be done with it. Now, not a kind of fun directly, but we're talking about it right now. So I think it's worth mentioning the, the, the negative side of this dignity of work argument is there's a, a lot of good negative literature that the FJG jobs would be undignified, or at least would come mm -hmm. to be perceived that way, that you have a stigma against, you know, oh, you're on the guaranteed jobs. And so there might be, you know, some sort of like intrinsically negative attachment to that, uh, especially if those jobs end up being busy work jobs that, you know, the, the dig a hole, fill it back in example type jobs are not too much dignified as sort of demoralizing. And so I think you also have the negative side of this thing. And this goes back to the the UBI point, like, like that sort of hard to pair well with the UBI, because a lot of people are very like, anti-norm that you have to work, right? And we don't want to, we want to challenge the norm that everyone has to work for a living. And obviously a critique of sort of the dignity of menial jobs go, pairs well with that. So there's a neg side of the dignity of labor stuff too. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's gonna be popular. Um, do the research, cut the cards, you'll be fine. Other 
counter plans. So there's like obviously just like a living wage counter plan to just, you know, if the app is just like, hey, we should have like a de facto $15 minimum wage, you should just be like, all right, counter plan, put that in. I'm not sure what the net benefit to that is, like maybe crowd out, but yeah. Living wage does not cost the government money. So spending would be a big oh, benefit. Yeah, spending. Mm-hmm. The other big one is like wage subsidies as one way to achieve full employment or one part of a policy, a set of policies to achieve full employment. And a wage subsidy is just like a progressive income tax in like reverse, um, which is just like, you know, you don't make enough. And so the government will just subsidize your wages up until you, the point that you make enough. And I think that'll be somewhat popular. Related to the expansion of the earned income tax credit is something I've seen in literature. The the other big set of negative counterplans, I think, will just be the ones that solve particular advantages the app claims. So all the flavors of advantage counterplans that exist. Yeah, definitely tons of advantage counterplans. The I, I would put a couple other, you know, buckets of counterplans on the table too. We talked a lot about the strength of the bargaining power position on the F. I think there will be counterplans that through like a bundle of things will attempt to get at that, right? So minimum wage plus stronger union laws, right? To encourage unionization, things like sectoral bargaining counterplans. Mm-hmm. Um, the other topic, one of the other topics that was on the slate for this for November, December was co-determination, which is giving workers power on corporate boards, essentially. So that combined with easing the burden on unions and sectoral bargaining and minimum wage, like bundles of things that are meant to empower workers, I think could be a pretty strong counterplan too, right? A counterplan that's like, we should have Medicare for all, raise the minimum wage, make it easier to form a union, co-determination, just a really strong pro-labor policy a bundle on the negative could be pretty powerful against an F, I think, too. Yeah, I really like the idea of reading the other topic on the slate as a counter plan. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that the third topic on the slate is equally strong. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then something already talked about, and I think more of the app discussion, but I think it's also good is just like, the government can create jobs without guaranteeing jobs. And I think all sorts of versions of just, like, the, it, it is good for the government to stimulate employment e.g. via like spending for you know new productive labor, but it doesn't need to do that by giving a minimum wage job to literally anyone who walks in the door. So like maybe we're concerned about having more climate jobs or just like more employment in general and trying to target full employment. The government could hire at like reasonably high wages people who are qualified to work on renewable energy and whatnot. And that achieves a lot of the same benefits of you know solving full employment, solving any particular concerns like lack of investment in the climate and whatnot. The thing it probably solves least well is like poverty because it, it seems to sort of explicitly be avoiding like hiring unqualified folks. Um, but even then, like stimulating full employment is probably a pretty reasonable way to reduce poverty in the first place, especially if you couple it with something else that also could be like a, a poverty solving measure. And I think those sorts of counterpoints are very good paired with any sort of indict to like job guarantees being ineffective and inefficient. Yeah, this goes back to our discussion on the app of automatic stabilizers. The the argument being federal jobs guarantee is an example of a stabilizer, but it's a very new one and not one we've really done before, right? We have existing things we tend to do in the US at least on an ad hoc basis whenever there's a crisis, right? The reason anytime there's a recession, you hear talk of a big stimulus bill, right? We have all these things ready, buckets of spending we wanna do, increases in unemployment insurance that we tend to do when there's a downturn. And there are tons of proposals out there, specifically recently because of COVID, for making some of those things we do on an ad hoc basis permanent and automatic, right? So anytime GDP goes down or unemployment goes up by a certain amount, unemployment insurance goes up, tons of money gets dumped into the transportation budget, 
right? things like that that would just happen automatically through fiscal policy um, could achieve a lot of the same results without sort of the crowd out arguments that the negative has for job guarantee, right? We just spend a whole bunch more money doing a whole bunch more things that by itself will employ more people combined with unemployment insurance essentially creates like a, a counter cyclical UBI for unemployed people that goes up and down with, with the market, right? So I think, I think those kind of things will be pretty popular as well. There's also some counter plans that are a little bit more technical, but I think some of them are actually pretty, pretty, pretty good. That's with monetary policy. So this gets a little bit in the weeds, but right now the Federal Reserve controls monetary policy in the US and its only mandate is price stability. There are a ton of uh, left economists who want to change that mandate to be a full employment mandate, right? And other countries in the world have this, right? Australia, ha uh, their central bank has a full employment mandate and they haven't had a recession in like 30 years. And that's mainly uh, people think due to their monetary policy, right? So there's ways of, of creating uh, or aiming at full employment that don't have to do with just hiring people straight out. Worth unpacking this a little bit more because I do think it's relevant to sort of a lot of the literature mm -hmm. is the, the tension here that's being assumed is that again, most economists view there as being a, an inherent trade-off between full employment and a stable of price, price level for like the, the value of the dollar. Um, and that if you have full employment for a protracted amount of time, what inevitably happens is inflation. Because if the economy is producing at full demand, what you have is more workers can demand more wages because the labor market is tight. And then if everyone demands more wages, companies respond by raising prices, in which case people would demand even more wages because they need to pay the new higher prices and so forth. That's the idea. Is uh, if you have full employment, then you also have in inflation. And so you'll see the app authors criticize the idea a lot. They say the problem of modern economics is we view unemployment as like this necessity. We have to have some level of unemployment as a buffer against inflation. And the problem of the Federal Reserve, again, per modern monetary theorists, is going to be that it's aiming at stable prices at the detriment of employment. And so the idea behind this counter plan, I think, also is to do the thing that a lot of the app authors are suggesting via the FDG is we should be aiming not at stable prices, but at full employment uh, as the better half of that dilemma. And maybe inflation is less of a concern than we thought it was and employment more of one. And so you'll, you'll see this theme a lot, not just for this specific counter plan, but for a lot of literature FDG in general is whether or not we need to concern ourselves with full employment versus inflation and whether there is a trade-off in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's also on the same theme, this isn't directly related, but it's in the same bucket and it's way more technical than we can get in here uh, into here as well. But there are a couple of articles out there about using monetary policy to create a jobs guarantee. And they use that kind of language. And the idea would be to create a labor standard for the dollar. So like we used to have the gold standard for the dollar that the dollar was defined as a certain amount of gold, right? And this idea would be to have various, very complicated maneuvers from the Fed to make a dollar worth a certain amount of labor. And therefore we could use the, the levers of monetary policy, interest rates, quantitative easing, uh, open market operations to control the amount of labor in the economy directly through monetary policy. I think I've seen the same article that you have. I think it's a, a, a fascinating counter plan that I expect not to be deployed well by any debater. Right. It, it requires a pretty, a pretty high level understanding of these things to deploy effectively because it's super counterintuitive. But I, I found it a very interesting, fascinating article. Um, I think if someone did the reading, it could be deployed pretty effectively. I guess uh, one thing related to the economy arguments presented above is 
Well, we are in a recession now. And so that does mess with some of the negatives arguments, um, especially the ones that are like more collapse based. On the other hand, it could be pretty good evidence for some counter plans, right? If you're going with sort of a more traditional automatic stabilizer argument as your counter plan, you could point to the stimulus bill as being a pretty good example of how that thing, type of thing could work if it were automatic, right? There's really good um, data out there that actually, for example, income went up during the first few months of COVID because of the stimulus bill. People were better off on average than they were before. Now that bill is about to run out and there's complex negotiations happening, but if those things were automatic, that's a pretty good argument for, um, you know, we can do this much more simply with our normal fiscal tools. Now this does remind me of a, an argument that I, on the negative I think is bad and yet was surprisingly common when this was the camp topic, which is the neg argument that just says, aha, COVID is happening and you defend a federal jobs guarantee. Therefore, you necessarily just open the economy up full scale and that leads to more spread of COVID. And mm-hmm. it, it seems to me bad because it's like, I mean, while that might suck if it happens, it, it just seems to be intentionally foisting upon the app the worst version of the app and to be like, you have to defend the bad version of your app that presumably no, no one in, the, in your AC that you're citing to actually defends. And it seems pretty reasonable that it, the app would say like, well, look, if we have you know quarantine in place and we also have a jobs guarantee, then the result would not be that we change all of quarantine law to make the FDG work so much as try to fit the jobs guarantee within that room. And that might, might lead to the sort of like more narrow issue of like, we can't find enough productive jobs, especially if the economy is closed. But I don't think any app is required to defend that we like open up every sector and remove all laws about social distancing just because they defend an FDG. And yet I saw a, a, a shocking number of debaters make arguments to this effect on the negative. All right, cool. When we come back, we'll do our conclusion. All right, that's our episode. Um, hopefully this was helpful as you think through how to like prep the federal jobs guarantee topic and as you think strategically about positions that you want to uh, take and things that you need to consider when you're defending your arguments. And remember, please submit your episode suggestions or questions uh, or feedback with us at the form linked below in the show notes. And thanks again to Victory Bruce for sponsoring this episode. This week uh, is less of a media recommendation and just more of like a thing that you can do on an off weekend. So uh, it turns out that because of the world of online debate, most tournaments, you know, you can go to them wherever. And that's not just like limited to the United States. You can compete at tournaments all across the world, like Europe, Australia, Asia, whatever. And so actually this weekend, um, Nails and I are doing the Effective Altruism Debating Championships, EADC, I think, uh, tournament, which is a British parliamentary style of debate tournament that's being hosted in Australia. So our sleep schedule is going to get like a little bit wrecked this weekend because the tournament does start at like 2 a.m. our time, but it's like fine. It it's actually doesn't go that late. Um, and it's really cool because you just get the opportunity to uh, compete with people from different countries and experience like their debating culture. And even though BP is not like American debate because it's uh, sort of limited prep slash no prep, whereas like all of our debates are very much, you know, do all the topic research beforehand. And BP is different because the topics are given to you only 15 minutes before the round and you don't get to use the internet to research. It is really a great way to A, uh, improve your on-the-spot thinking, and B, improve uh, your way of thinking about thinking about debate because it just is so different that you just get a better perspective on how debate works. This is actually the second tournament uh, that I've gone to in Australia of recent. Um, one of my friends who goes to an Australian university, their partner dropped out for a BP tournament last minute, and so I just decided to sub in for them. 
And I, I learned a decent bit about debate and uh, there's some really good Australian debaters out there. Um, and the cool thing about this particular tournament is actually Professor William McCaskill, who's the youngest uh, tenured professor in philosophy at Oxford, um, will actually be doing a live Q&A session with members of this tournament in between rounds one and two. And I think getting the opportunity to talk with uh, Professor McCaskill will be really awesome. So my suggestion uh, is if you've got a free weekend, try to find a tournament internationally and do some different styles of debate. It'll, it'll be really helpful, I think, for you in LD, but also just like a fun experience. So to be clear, anyone can just attend these tournaments? Yeah, there's no age limitations. You can be as old or as young as you want. Uh, there are high <laughs> schoolers. There are, you know, Nails and I are both college grads and we're going for fun. Uh, and so, yeah, anyone can join. Like I, uh, when I was in China, I did a VP tournament there uh, as well because another friend uh, didn't have a partner and so needed me to fill in. And in one of our rounds with someone who was like 55 years old, still doing VP. I don't really know why. But yeah, I think Nails and I can do okay. I, I get a I, link. Uh, hmm? Can we can we get a link for that? Can we can we stream this? I have no idea. Uh, I, I will drop a link to the Facebook event in the show notes. I, I imagine the biggest challenge will be that Nails does not know anything about British parliamentary <laughs> debate, and so having to inform him about the sort of weirdness of the format. This house is, believes. Well, so that part is fine. The part that's weird is it's two versus two versus two versus two. So it's in essence two teams of four against each other, right? A government and an opposition. But the two teams that compose each side, so the two teams for the government and the two teams for the opposition, are also competing amongst themselves for the top spot, right? And so it could be the case that the first government team that speaks gets ranked first in the round, but the second government team that speaks is actually ranked fourth because they're just like really bad or something like that. And so you're actually looking for ways to subtly undermine uh, your partners. Um, so, so you're saying it's extremely passive aggressive. It seems very <laughs> British. That makes sense. Yeah, it is. It, I, and so that's probably my least favorite part. <laughs> of I, I would much prefer if we were all just kind of like on the same team. But other than that, the other parts of BP, like limited prep, the topics are like wide range of different areas, um, forcing people to like rely on just smart off the cuff analytics. Um, things like that are totally fine. And I think it's really good for people to experience. Yeah, there's a reason Larry has explained this whole thing. He is correct in saying, I have no idea how BP works. This will be my first time ever. I've never even seen a, a, a parliamentary round of any variety. But I must say, I'm intrigued by the idea that like the two NC gets to line by line the one and be like, this is wrong. <laughs> Uh, so you yeah, can't do that explicitly because that's called knifing and you're not allowed to explicitly contradict anything your part, your other team with you has said. What you instead have to do is add a new contribution in later speeches. So something <laughs> that they haven't talked about that you, so you then elaborate on. So you can yes and in a way that subtly undermines them? Yeah, yeah. So you okay. can say like, you know, I think, you know, the opening team has talked a lot about, you know, X issue. I think that's important, but I think Y is more important for, you know, <laughs> Z, A, B, and C reasons. Um, and that's kind of what happened. That's the argument that many people make, but a, you know, a more interesting argument is... <laughs> yeah, no, like, exactly. That's the part that I dislike the most. Um, but it, 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 you get over it pretty quickly. It's mostly just, like, when you're the first speaking team, you just, like, need to cover all of your bases or be, like, very explicit as to, like, the one thing that you're focusing right. on is the main thing. Um, and then if you're yeah, the opposition, you have to like look for, uh, or the second half of the debate, you have to like look for the things that they missed. It does seem that scenario that the team on your side that you're competing against would be much more annoying than the opposition <laughs> because the opposition yes, is just 100%. the opposition. But, oh, wow. 100%. It's almost like being in like a, a meeting where someone tries to take credit for your ideas. Yeah, you, you have to experience it. I, I will say like BP, I, I think is subpar, uh, but world school debate, like it gets a lot, a lot of flack in the US and that's because world school debate just isn't very developed in the US. But internationally, those students are incredibly good. 
Um, there's a reason why the U.S. just doesn't win World Schools Championships, despite the fact that we have really good debaters. And that's just because other nations like India, like I think Thailand does pretty well. Um, you know, those countries like have excellent students who are really good at World Schools debate. Like I think they would wreck the vast majority of uh, American debaters in any extemp style debate um, where we have to like actually do real public speaking and like make arguments that aren't just cards. Um, well, that's the thing. Yeah, our, our styles of debate just do not prepare kids to to do that, mm -hmm. which is why Team USA always randomly has like a hodgepodge of debaters and like extempers. Yeah. Really? Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm pretty excited for this. And honestly, for all of you listening, just just do it. Like try a tournament. It's really fun. It, it costs like the entry fees like $20 usually. It's like really, really cheap. Um, yeah, you have to like wreck your sleep schedule for a weekend, but you're doing that anyways at online debate tournaments. So, you know, might as well do something uh, fun. Uh, all right, cool. Uh, that's our episode for this week. Hopefully it was helpful. See you all next time.